we go. Uh, Good morning. Um, Thanks for having me. Uh, Admittedly, it is always a calculated risk when you invite a seminary professor to come and give a sermon. So, uh, again, I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here. Um, Before we start, I would uh, like to pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask for the presence of your Spirit here this morning. May we hear from you. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, Judge not, says Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. If, If there were any command... In our culture where this, uh, this might actually resonate with where we are, it would seem to be this one. Stop judging. Don't judge, it, judge people, right? This resonates with uh, people today who seem to be attracted to tolerance and relative truth. These words are often parroted in our culture. Like, who am I to judge, Right? Or you might hear the phrase, not that there's anything wrong with that. I've never walked in their shoes. You like chocolate. I like strawberry. It's all good. Uh, in the extreme, uh, we might be led to conclude that we should never judge anyone at all, except, of course, those who judge other people. How odd is it, then, that Christians are often best known for being unkind and judgmental. Uh, about a decade ago, a Barna study reported that nearly 90% of respondents found Christians to be judgmental and hypocritical. Now, some of that might be explained by the fact that our culture has become so non-committal that any stand for truth comes off as judgmental. And I think there may be some truth to that, though I think Frankly, our culture is increasingly judgmental, but Christians often lead the way. We're often best known for what we oppose, or strongly disapprove of, or outright condemn. Christians are often known for being against abortion, for gay rights, against gay rights, I'm sorry, uh, uh, against gambling and swearing, which often go together. Uh, Christians are often known against uh, being against evolution, against environmentalists and tree huggers, against social justice or socialized medicine or any philosophy that contains the word social. Other Christians uh, were also critical of, especially mainline liberal Christians like maybe Lutherans or Methodists or even the more conservative Roman Catholics. We have been known to oppose Harry Potter and the Teletubbies. The Teletubbies. Actually, that one makes good sense to me. I'd never... Uh, my, my kids love that show. Um, we turn to social media for maybe more subtle forms or less subtle forms of criticism. On Facebook, we might avoid making eye contact with our tattoo-laden, weed-smoking co-worker. Or we cast a suspicious glance at our noisy neighbor for throwing parties and generally enjoying life. But we can also be judgmental and condemning of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We might be deliberately cool to others in church whose perhaps uh, whose political persuasions 
may not match ours. We cultivate skills in avoiding certain people on Sunday morning, which can be a a, a bit difficult in a smaller congregation. We readily fault other Christians for being either too lenient or too strict, for being too forgiving, too judgmental, and after the service, we usually render our verdicts. What did you think about that worship song this morning? Did we really need to repeat that chorus so many times? And that this is just completely random. I am not criticizing anything that has happened this morning. Um, And what was up with that sermon? We find plenty of things to judge. I'd never let my kids get away with that kind of behavior. We pass judgment on others' appearances. I can't believe they wore that to church. And then we have the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. This uh, should be on page 788 in in your pew Bibles. Uh, Read along with me. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet, and then turn and tear you to pieces." I think it will be helpful this morning, briefly, for me to back up and set this passage in the broader context of the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, recorded here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the most brilliant discourse ever given. Here, Jesus is talking about what it means to live the good life, which means what it means to live a life in the kingdom. And what happens in the sermon often uh, is unfortunate. It, it, what tends to happen is that this is misread as God, through Jesus Christ, actually giving us a stricter set of rules that simply builds on the Old Testament law. Right? It used to be, don't murder. Now you're guilty of murder if you hate your brother. It used to be, don't commit adultery. But now you're actually guilty, guilty of adultery for every lustful glance. Divorce used to be allowed, but now it's forbidden unless your spouse has cheated. As one theologian put it, it's not uncommon for a lot of Christian ethicists to take these passages and to make Christ meaner than Moses. But the Sermon on the Mount is meant to show us what life in the kingdom of God looks like and the behaviors of those who dwell there. And the basic flow of 5, 6, and 7 is something like this. Jesus opens with the Beatitudes. He starts, he starts at the bottom of the pyramid. Blessed are the poor and the persecuted, the meek, the spiritual zeros, those who mourn. He talks about being salt 
and light and reveals that the internal purpose of the law is ultimately love, which means loving our enemies and turning the other cheek. Jesus comes forward and says something completely radical. He says, I am the fulfillment of the law. The old law, as good as it was, can never transform the heart. That can only happen with Jesus' help. Mere external conformity will no longer do. So murder and adultery are revealed as heart issues in the kingdom. Jesus exposes the bankruptcy of traditional morality with these pithy, kind of bombastic statements reflecting life in the kingdom. We're to drop everything and to be reconciled with our estranged brother or sister. We're we're to love our enemies, to turn the other cheek, to give freely to others, to fast and pray without theatrics. And then a series of, of things to avoid, a series of do nots. Don't let wealth grab a hold of your heart. Don't worry. And then here in chapter 7, don't judge. Jesus knows precisely how destructive judgment can be among believers. And he knows our tendencies to do this, especially to those who are closest to us. So Jesus has a few words for the fault finders and the fixers and the overly critical among us, which ought to cover just about all of us here. So there's, as you might expect, there's always three points to a sermon. This has been driven in my head from seminary days, and I'm continuing in that tradition by giving three points this morning. Uh, When tempted, when we are tempted to pass judgment on others, we need to be conscious of God's coming judgment. This is admittedly the real negative part of this sermon. Don't judge. And immediately, we seem to have a problem, because it seems to be impossible to live in this world without making some kind of discerning decisions. How can we avoid casting our pearls before pigs without making some kind of judgment? Even more so, how can we possibly correct a brother or sister without making some kind of judgment? The word judge here actually means to separate or to sift or to to part or decide. And that, admittedly, can be either good or bad, depending on the context. In in a positive sense, uh, judgment is an act of discernment founded on wisdom. In a negative sense, it's a form of correction. So Jesus is telling us here very forcefully to stop condemning or judging our brothers and sisters completely. And this prohibition comes with a stark warning. He tells us why. In order, in order that we not be judged. Well, he, while he might be speaking of judgment on a human plane, something like uh, what comes around goes around, um, it, it's more likely here refers to God's future coming judgment, which frankly is far more threatening. It's interesting here to note, too, that this same word for judge is used in both instances. He doesn't say, if we judge others, then one day when we stand before the great throne of evaluation, it'll probably be okay. Or that if we judge others, we'll be subjected to a kind of divine critique. 
One day we too will be judged. And Matthew, who is writing for a Jewish audience, focuses more on judgment and reward and punishment than any other gospel writer. It's scattered all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. We've already mentioned anger this morning. If you're angry with your brother, you'll be subject to judgment. That's back in chapter 5. Cut off your hand. Pluck out your eye if necessary, because it's better to lose part of your body than to have your whole body suffer judgment in hell. Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and drive out demons and perform many miracles? Yet the Lord dismisses these as evildoers later in chapter 7. For without judgment, repentance and forgiveness don't seem to make a whole lot of sense. And of course, please hear me, Jesus demonstrates his power freely to forgive Whoever acknowledges me before heaven or before men, I'm sorry, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But but even with this forgiveness that is promised in Christ, we are still warned against condemning and fault-finding. And in verse 2, Jesus elaborates this further. His, His wording here often reflects the wisdom books of the Old Testament. It's actually put out for us in a rather poetic form, a kind of uh, parallelism here with a repeated phrase only worded slightly differently. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured you. This is critique and poetry all wrapped into one. But here's a question for us to consider this morning. How do we measure people? How do we measure people? The the criteria we use will one day be applied to us. Which means we are not to judge others for either being too rigid or too tolerant, too assertive, too indifferent, for being too lax or too impatient, for being too sad or too joyful, too uneducated, too schooled, for swearing or addiction or lust or pride or anger or even for being too judgmental. Once again, Jesus is not asking us simply to tone it down. He says, stop it. I will hold you accountable for the things you have condemned in others. Imagine what it might be like at that final day to have these questions asked of us. Were you inclined to express frustration over someone else's lack of patience? Did did you judge your own problems as being worse than those of others? Did you marvel at how easily others seem to be weighed down with sin? Did you hold a grudge? Were you generous in your estimation of others? It's far better to let Jesus question us now than to hear these words later. Which leads to the second point. Uh, When tempted to pass judgment on others, we should be considerate or considering our own faults. Uh, If Jesus were just to have stopped after verse 2, we'd be in, frankly, a difficult place. 
For Yes, we're not to pass negative judgments against our brother or sister. This doesn't mean that we never exercise corrective discerning judgment. And that's where Jesus is going. This is what he's working towards. But he first wants to uncover some harsh realities about us and how we condemn. And here Jesus probes the depths of the human heart exposing the reality of our condemnation with a set of rhetorical questions, with this admittedly grotesque imagery to kind of shock us into a new spiritual sensitivity. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye when you effectively have this massive plank jutting out of your own eye? It's something like a support beam. I mean, that's, that's quite a um, comical comparison. And here's, here's the point he's making. It's, it's really, it's about vision. Too often, judging blinds us to our own junk. We see and condemn shortcomings in others, but we fail to notice the stuff that we haven't dealt with. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the spiritually weaker person is the weaker party. But we often have these blind spots when it comes to our own character. When we render these kinds of negative judgments, we are exercising like selective perception. If you've got a log or a beam in your own eye, how can you possibly see well enough to help your sister or brother? And he continues this illustration, moving from fault-finding to fixing. Here, let me help you with that infinitesimally small speck of sawdust. How can you possibly be in any position to help another? I like how the biblical scholar Leon Morris put it uh, when he said, Jesus is drawing attention to a curious feature of the human race in which profound ignorance of oneself is so often combined with an arrogant presumption of knowledge about others, especially their faults. I once heard a brief radio clip of the comedian George Carlin who pointed out that we all have this tendency to think that we're the ones who drive at the correct speed and everyone else is wrong. He said, did you ever notice that when you're driving somewhere and you have to pass somebody that you tend to think of them as an idiot? Right? Look at that idiot. But then, if someone ever passes you, well, they're just a maniac. So the the roads are filled with idiots and maniacs, except you. Right? Jesus has a word for this. It's called hypocrite. And in both examples, the judger loses sight of the true nature of his or her condition. When we condemn others... Of the very things that we're guilty of ourselves, we become unwitting hypocrites. And inevitably, fault finders become fixers. Let me help you with that speck of sawdust. Don't pay attention to what's coming out of my eye. I mean, imagine telling a professional baseball player how to correct his stance in the batter's box when you couldn't hit a wiffle ball out of your own backyard. Or imagine telling Julia Child how she should enhance her cheese souffle 
when your idea of culinary creativity is adding like a package of frozen veggies to some ramen noodles. Or imagine telling your pastor how he could improve his sermon. Um, That's just for future reference. Um, We become know-it-alls and fault-finders and people-fixers. So, so what, are we, what are we to do? Finally, there's something positive here. Uh, we're to remove the barriers to our own vision first, which I think means nothing more than learning to see ourselves as Christ sees us, which admittedly entails listening to Jesus through the Holy Spirit and letting the Spirit and others tell us what we need to work on. This is, the, this is really the frustrating part of so much of the New Testament. We're, we're given all of these wonderful things that we're to do, but it always seems to be lacking in specifics. So how do we do this? And Jesus doesn't specifically say. I mean, there are at best, I think, clues earlier in the sermon. If we are to be followers of Christ... If we're to walk in the way, we have at least a template for prayer in the Lord's Prayer in chapter 6. The Lord's Prayer that not only underscores our own need for daily forgiveness, but also presupposes that we are forgiving those who owe us an apology. Even better if we combine combine this with some type of fasting as Jesus will continue on in later in this chapter, in verse 16. And it's admittedly a little troubling when Jesus doesn't say, if you choose to fast, but rather, when you fast. Now, again, this is not trying to... Jesus isn't giving us a new law to obey. It's about letting Christ transform us. So this might mean fasting for a season, maybe skipping a meal, or letting our bodily hunger serve as a reminder of prayer for a similar internal hunger for righteousness. These practices are only useful if they give us a clearer vision of who God is and who we are. So, to be real practical, if you struggle with judging others, it might be helpful to recite the Lord's Prayer maybe two or three times a day. A lot of us, I'm sure, have committed this to memory Um, So maybe once in the morning, once over the noon hour, and once before bed. It's also possible to reveal yourself to a trusted friend and let them make some observations about you. Which brings us to the last point. Finally, when tempted to find faults in others, we should be careful in our correction. Verse 5 talked about refraining from critical condemnation and fault-finding. That's great, but it doesn't mean that we're never to do these things. It may be actually rarer than we think. I mean, certainly it should only be undertaken when we're becoming the kinds of people who inhabit the kingdom of God. So if verse 5 speaks about being careful in how we correct, verse 6 speaks of being wise in who we correct. Some people may not be ready to hear what you have to say. Here we are urged to judge not with condemnation, but with discernment. Because careful correction requires clear vision. When Jesus says that we will be able to see clearly in verse 5, 
these words literally mean to, to see into or to see through. Its form is very close to this generic Greek word for vision that is also used here in this passage. And I think the idea is something like this. When we judge, we're just looking at another person. But when we're aware of our own faults and are humble before Christ, we are able to see into and to see through a person's life. I remember probably only three things from my entire seminary education, and one of them came in my, one of my least favorite classes on pastoral counseling. But it stuck with me, and uh, it's, it's proved helpful. The, the professor said, if you encounter someone with irritating behavior, there's almost always pain behind that. There's almost always pain behind that. Seeing through, seeing through might help us remember that. So I want us, this is like a a, a risk here, and I want us to take a brief imaginative exercise. Um, If if it helps to close your eyes, go ahead. You don't have to, but I, I want you to imagine that individual or individuals that you most struggle to get along with that person who just rubs you the wrong way. And imagine that you are in a setting where you see them walking toward you and there's no escape exit. Maybe they're a know-it-all. Maybe they treat everyone who's not as educated as they are like a second-class citizen. Maybe it's a person who thinks the world is made to serve them. Maybe... They're, ones, uh, they're a person who just takes credit for everyone else's hard work without doing their own. Maybe they're a bitter Democrat or an obnoxious Republican. Maybe it's the mom who was always so well put together, whose kids are perfectly behaved. Or maybe it's the mom who feeds her family at the drive through and whose kids always seem to be out of control. Maybe it's an excessive rule follower or someone who thinks that the rules don't apply to them. Maybe they're needy and clingy and always seem to be a victim and you just don't have the emotional currency to give them the time of day. Maybe they're a chronic no person, perpetually angry over the moral decay of our culture and always focused on what's wrong with the world. Maybe they're just dripping with pride and their words are always condescending. Maybe it's a backstabber. It may be someone close to you, a parent, a spouse, an in-law, an ex-husband or wife. Now imagine as you're walking toward them, you see Jesus coming up behind them, wearing an expression of sheer joy and delight on his face like when you're anticipating a reunion with a long-lost friend. And you can tell that he's hoping to surprise this person with a bear hug. And you begin to think that while this person certainly doesn't deserve it, they probably need it. You know, the most aberrant or irritating behavior is, again, caused by usually some deep pain. 
So as you take this scene in, something begins to dawn on you. And you realize that you have been looking in a mirror. And here's, here's the point. That when we condemn our brother or sister, we wreck the relationship and we kill community. To condemn is to exclude. And the irony here is that when we condemn someone else, the same Jesus who died for them offers his forgiveness as the one who was judged and condemned for us. I I find no more insightful words on this than what Dallas Willard said. When we condemn another, we really communicate that he or she, in some deep and just possibly irredeemable way, is bad. Bad as a whole and to be rejected. In our eyes, the condemned is among the discards of human life. He or she is not acceptable. We sentence that person to exclusion. But the deepest irony of all here is that when we condemn another person for whom Jesus died, the same Jesus still holds out an offer of forgiveness as the one who is judged and condemned in our place. Bonhoeffer saw he saw this. He he knew, uh, he knew what this meant in being a disciple. He said disciples can't excuse themselves. Um, sorry, disciples cannot excuse in themselves what they condemn in others. Now they are as tough on the evil in themselves as they used to be on the evil in others and as considerate of evil in others as they are of themselves. For our evil is no different than the evil in others. I think that's a description of Matthew 7. The the blues musician Daryl Davis knows something about this, about careful and risky correction through a Christ-like vision. Uh, A couple of decades ago, he started to befriend white supremacists and KKK members by attending the rallies, uh, their rallies, rather, and actually eating out with them in their homes. You you may have judged by the slide that Daryl Davis is black. Davis never tried to convert any of them. His message was simple. How can you hate me when you don't even know me. Look at me and tell me to my face why you should lynch me. This is a a dangerous mission to be sure. And he was often given grief, mainly by those within his own community. He was called an Uncle Tom, an Oreo. High-ranking members of the NAACP met with him in his home and urged him to stop. They told him, we have worked so hard to move ten steps forward, and here you are sitting down with the enemy, having dinner, putting us twenty steps back. So Davis had had enough by this point and stood up and showed them a room full of robes and hoods from members who had abandoned the KKK and their hateful ideology because of 
their friendship with Davis. And then he told them, I'm putting a dent into racism. And then asked them, how many hoods and robes have you collected? Yes, of course, Davis strongly opposed the immoral message of white supremacy, but he didn't condemn them. He didn't relegate them to the trash heap of history. And because he didn't condemn them, he became an agent of reconciliation. I think we're all faced by the reality that it's far easier for us to condemn from a distance than to be scandalized by who we choose to love. And this is not a a liberal love without judgment, but a love in light of God's judgment. As soon as we entertain the thought Jesus would never associate with and fill in the blank, I think we need some theology. Because the cross of Christ is the great equalizer. Because here we all come up short. Before the cross, we all stand as empty-handed beggars before God. So let us not be known for our condemnation, but better to be known for our scandalous love that leaves us vulnerable to persecution and to condemnation for others. But if we take steps to do these kinds of things, we will find ourselves in very good company we will find ourselves dining with the one who was condemned in our place. Let's pray. This is a prayer from St. Ephraim the Syrian. O Lord Jesus, and Master of my life, take from me the spirit of sloth, faint-heartedness, lust of power, and idle talk. But give me rather the spirit of chastity, humility, patience, and love to thy servant. Yea, Lord, grant me the gift of sorrow over my own sin. Yea, Lord and King, grant me to see my own errors and not to condemn my brother. For blessed art thou unto ages of ages. Amen.